You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. David Guzik here, and I'm so pleased that you could join me today for this week's live question and answer program. We're here coming to you from Santa Barbara, and I'm very pleased that I can be with you because for the last two Thursdays, I haven't been able to join you. I've been out of town for a couple of different things, but I am very happy to be back here, and we can come together on a Thursday afternoon where I bring you a lead question that comes in from our viewers or other people coming to our website. Uh, Maybe it's a comment on a YouTube channel. Uh, Maybe it's something that comes in through social media, but we begin with a lead question, and then I take uh, up to an hour or so to answer whatever questions come in on the live chat. So today's live question has to do with uh, receiving communion, the Lord's Supper, and it really can be summarized in this question, uh, how do I take communion? Is it the bread or the cup first? So um, here we go. Uh, I'm just going to bring you the question from Crystal. Here's the question. It says, uh, Hello, Pastor David. I live in Germany. So because of the time difference, could you answer this question in your next session? I got a question concerning communion. Is it of any importance whether the bread or the cup is taken first? In our church, sometimes we read Luke 22, starting at verse 17, where Jesus obviously takes a cup first. And then it happens that we do it the wrong way. When we read from 1 Corinthians 11, it is the opposite, and that's the way I've known to do it since I was little. I know that there used to be more than one cup in the Jewish Passover, and that it has a deeper meaning that we celebrate a shortened version of the original Passover. But do you think the order is important to God? What would you do if you attended a service where the cup is taken first? Would you participate? Well, Christoph, first of all, let me say thank you. I'm so pleased when we can have viewers from all over the world. And since for seven years, my wife and I, we served in Germany uh, with a small international Bible college in connection with a wonderful congregation in a smaller city in Germany called Siegen, Germany. Uh, we have many dear friends and uh, partners in ministry over there in Germany. In regard, you ask a great question here, Christoph. Um, is it significant whether or not a person takes the bread or the cup first when they celebrate communion? Uh, what is the significance of these things, and how should we regard this one way or another? Well, let me say, first of all, at the Last Supper, Uh, the Lord's Supper, what we would call it there, when Jesus gathered together with his disciples in the upper room on the night he would be betrayed and arrested, the night before he would be crucified and buried in the tomb. We understand that that last meal that Jesus had with his disciples was a Passover meal. And in that Passover meal, Jesus reinterpreted at least some of the elements of the Passover meal. You see, in a Jewish Passover Seder, or ritual, the the ritual meal for Passover, uh, every aspect of the meal has some kind of ritual significance. And instead of the bread representing the bread of affliction that the people of Israel ate during their uh, slavery in Egypt, Jesus held the bread up in front of his disciples, and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then there were four cups, each one having somewhat of a different significance, but all of them connected to the redemption that Israel had uh, when they were brought out from Egypt. Uh, He said, reinterpreting the cup, this cup is my blood. This is the cup of the new covenant. So Jesus took some of the elements, the main elements of the Passover supper, and he reinterpreted them in himself in the new covenant that he would institute through his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, that's the significance of the bread and the cup, at least in some part. 
Secondly, we need to understand when regarding the order of taking the bread and the cup. In different places, we see communion or the Lord's table in the New Testament. We see that normally the bread comes first and then the cup. Now, in the records of Matthew and Mark, it's clear that the bread came before the cup. You could look at that at Mark chapter 26, excuse me, Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 and on, and then Mark chapter 14, verses 22 and on. So in Matthew and Mark, again, it's clear that the bread came before the cup. Now, in Luke, it's a little more complicated, because in Luke, there are two cups spoken of, one before the bread, and then another one after the bread. Now, this shows us, of course, that in Matthew and Mark, where they just mentioned the cup that was taken after the bread, they're not inaccurate. It's just Luke gives us a little more of an explanation than Matthew and Mark. Let me read to you the Luke passage that leads some people to believe that we should take the cup before we take the bread in the communion. Okay, Luke chapter 22, beginning now at verse 17. Then he took the cup, he meaning Jesus there, then Jesus took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Okay, so that's taking of a cup. Now verse 19. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So, technically speaking, Luke highlights a cup before the bread, then the bread, then a cup after the bread. Now, if you're confused by all the cups, don't be. The ritual of the Jewish Passover meal, both ancient and modern, has four ceremonial sips or cups of wine. This isn't strange at all. So Luke mentions that there was a cup before, actually two cups, one before the bread and one after. Matthew and Mark emphasize the idea uh, of just receiving the cup after the bread. Now, there is another relevant passage in this that was mentioned by Christoph. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning now at verse 23. Let me read that. Paul writes here, and I think this passage is very relevant, because this passage reflects more on how the New Testament church understood how they should receive communion. So, 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul adds the later comment there in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he Now, in the 1 Corinthians 11 passage, we see plainly that the taking of the bread comes before the taking of the cup. So, adding all of this together, even though the Luke passage mentions two cups, one taken before the bread and one taken after, it would seem that the normative way, especially in light of the 1 Corinthians 11 passage, is to take the bread first and then the cup. So I would just simply say that that is the correct way, and it should be the normal way of receiving communion. However, I would say this, and Christoph, this was your question as well, would you participate in a church communion service that did it in a way that seemed to be out of order? Would you participate? And I would just say this, because of the Luke passage, which does mention a cup before the bread, I would not regard it as being dangerous or heretical 
for someone to take the cup first. You see, I, I give you my perspective on this. And again, I want to recognize that there might be people who disagree with me, and it's something that we could discuss, of course. But we need to be careful about the things that we would divide over or declare to be heretical. I'll give you an example. In the early church, and I'm talking about the first two or three hundred years of the church, there was a controversy among Christians called the Quartodecimian controversy. And again, this was in the early church. And the Quartodecimian controversy was over whether or not Easter should be celebrated in connection with Passover or if it should always be celebrated on a Sunday. In other words, you can calculate that because. Now, again, the testament is a little bit unclear, but let's just say, for the sake of argument, that Jesus was crucified on Passover, then three days later was Easter, then people would say, three days after Passover, counting the Passover day, one, two, three, then that day is Easter, no matter what day of the week it stands on. There were some Christians in the other church who were convinced that that's how we should mark Easter. Now, there were other Christians who said, no, Jesus rose on a Sunday. We want to emphasize that. So we're always going to commemorate the crucifixion of Jesus on a certain day of the week. It came to be on the day Friday. And we're always going to commemorate the resurrection on Sunday because we know that. No matter what the date is or no matter what the connection is with Passover. I want you to understand. In this quartodecimian controversy, Christians declared each other to be out of God's kingdom over things that are clearly side issues. And actually, a person can be wrong about these issues without it being heresy, without it being what we might call a deadly error. And so, if someone receives or conducts a communion service, or they receive communion, with the cup first and the bread second, I would say that's incorrect, but I, I would not make a huge deal about it. I, I don't regard that as some fatal compromise. Understand this. When it comes to communion, the power is not in the ritual itself, but in the reality of what Jesus did for us on the cross and our receiving it by faith, receiving it into our innermost being. You see, um, another matter that people sometimes ask about regarding communion is if communion must be celebrated or observed only in a church, or if it can also be received in other places. It, you, you know, um, a home, or if it has to be conducted with recognized church leaders. Uh, these are things that people ask about as well. My response to this would be simply that 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 17, it presents communion in the early church at the setting of church services, that is, having to do with the meetings of the church. So definitely in the New Testament, church communion was celebrated and received at church meetings. There's no doubt about that. Yet, I don't see anything in the Scripture that absolutely restricts the celebration of communion. In fact, there's a passage in the book of Acts that implies that communion was observed informally in homes. Acts chapter 2, verse 46 says that the early Christians were breaking bread from house to house. Now, that phrase, breaking bread from house to house, that could simply mean that they ate meals together as believers. But most commentators and Bible scholars see the phrasing of that as being the suggestion of celebrating communion in these informal house to house ways. Okay, but that's another question. I do think it's okay if you celebrate communion in your home. I do think that it does not. Uh, have to be led by an ordained pastor, uh, that the father of a family can have communion with his family. They can take the bread and the cup and remember and receive 
what Jesus did for them on the cross, both in his broken body, represented by the bread, and in the cup, represented by the, representing the blood Jesus poured out. But here's the point. Wherever communion is celebrated, what God tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 must be kept in mind. The Lord's table is a place to reverently and respectfully remember and receive what Jesus did for us on the cross in the form again of the bread and the cup. It's wrong to receive communion in a flippant or disrespectful way whether that happens in a church or whether it happens in a home. So I would recommend receiving communion with the bread first and then the cup. But I would also recommend against regarding anyone who takes the cup first as being a heretic or even a dangerous person to the church. So to answer Christoph's question, if I was a guest, at a communion service where the cup was received first, I would participate in it. I wouldn't refuse it, saying, oh, this is so out of order, I can't have anything to do with it. But I would not do it in a way uh, myself. I, excuse me, I would not do it that way myself. And I would not recommend doing it that way. So that's about what I have uh, in today's um, question and answer time for the lead question. Let me come back now and just speak to the issues of things that come up on our side chat, and I'm happy to take a look at those things right here. So um, here we go from the very beginning. Um, Jose asks, what's true worship of God according to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and John chapter 4, verse 23. Well, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is of course that great passage that speaks about uh, the worship of God. Let me just turn over there. Well, it's that great passage that speaks of our bodies being surrendered to God as a living sacrifice. Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, actually your spiritual service. Now, this indicates for us that true worship of God has an element of the surrender of the life. We find this being something that the Old Testament prophets dealt with from time to time. The Old Testament prophets would sometimes rebuke the people of Israel because they brought their sacrifices, their demonstrations of worship, but their heart was not. And I just think it's very important for us to be able to say that not only do we come before God with worship of our words, but also with a surrendered life in some aspect. So that surrendered life, I think, is an important, that idea of being a living sacrifice. And then, again, if you go to John chapter 4, verse 23, that's Jesus speaking of the importance of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, Jesus said, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So true worship has an aspect of genuine surrender of the life and the will unto God. but it also has a, another aspect to it, and that other aspect is an aspect of being something that is spiritual and not just fleshly or material in its character. So that's simply what I would say there, Jose. I hope that answer helped you regarding that. Let me uh, go on to another question here. Um, Karen asks, good afternoon. Was Cain Satan's seed? And Abel, Adam's seed. Karen, I would say no, absolutely not. Um, especially if we want to talk about seed being in the sense of anything genetic. Um, Cain and Abel, genetically speaking, were the same as two sons of Adam and Eve. So Cain being the firstborn, of course, and Abel being the second. Now, 
Abel was a righteous and a godly man. We know that both from the Genesis text and as he's mentioned later on, especially in Hebrews chapter 11. Abel was a godly man. Cain was an ungodly man, even a murderer of his own brother. But uh, to call him Satan's seed implies that he was born of Satan. And uh, I don't think that the Bible text tells us he did evil and he advanced the evil purposes of Satan. He was, so to speak, a tool in Satan's hand. And if you could say, if you want to talk about in the sense that Jesus later spoke about those enemies of God being a brood of vipers, you know, the descendants of of, uh, Satan-like images, then you could say that. But that's not the wording that I would use to describe the contrast between Cain and Abel. So, Karen, I don't know if that answer helps you at all, but um, that's really the perspective that I would. Uh, let me go on here. Um, Donald asks for Bible words for a new job. Hmm. Well, Daniel, I would say this. If somebody's praying for a new job, I would say, go to the passages in the New Testament where Paul talks about the importance of somebody working to provide their own sustenance. Paul says if a person doesn't work, they should not eat. And I think you could say, Lord, I can see that it's your general will for all of humanity to work. Of course, there's some people who are unemployed, maybe unemployed for a long time, and maybe God works in and through those circumstances. But we can't deny that in general, it's God's general will for humanity to work and to be provided for by their work uh, through the income they would receive through their work. And so you can say, Lord, I know this is your general will for humanity. I pray that you would make it my specific experience and pray with confidence, knowing God's general will, at least general in terms of humanity, and pray with that kind of confidence. That's the best Bible word I could give to you there, Donald, regarding a new job. Susan says, or asks, Hi, Pastor David. Can Christians take part in Halloween, and if so, to what extent? Thank you. Susan, I would say that to whatever extent a Halloween commemoration um, furthers or promotes or glorifies the demonic, the wicked, uh, things that have nothing to do with God, Christians should not be a part of it. I do know that Christians, oftentimes churches, in a uh, form of outreach, try to provide an alternative. Uh, for families, an alternative that has nothing to do with the evil or demonic associations. Um, So I would just say that whatever extent a particular commemoration of Halloween would glorify or associate with or honor these things of darkness, um, then Christians should just simply stay away from it. And, And I think that's a pretty thing. That line may be regarded a bit different according to an individual Christian's conscience and understanding and perception. But I think in general, that's the line that we're I think that it's even better for Christians to recognize that October 31st, instead of it being Halloween, let's understand it for what it really is. It's Reformation Day. It's the day that commemorates the publication of Martin Luther's 95 theses or statements against the practice in the Roman Catholic Church, of selling indulgences. And uh, it's a marvelous turning point in the history of Europe and the world, really being the spark for what is often called the Protestant Reformation. Okay, let me go on here. Lupe asks, "Um, I've heard that it's not good to use, a good idea to use the Message or Passion Bibles. What do you have to say about this? Okay, Lupi, let me say, um, I am more familiar with the Message Bible. I have one of them somewhere on my shelf. I'm more familiar with the Message Bible than I am the Passion Translation. I'll speak to both of them here just for a moment. The Message Bible, I don't regard as being a great translation. I think it is more of a commentary 
then a translation. Uh, the Message Bible is Eugene Peterson's uh, own translation of the Bible. His attempt to make the Bible more powerful, more impactful, uh, more brought into common parlance of speech, and in the doing of it, whatever his intentions were, I think that the end result is more of an interpretation than it is a translation. I, I'm not saying that there might not be places here and there in the message uh, translation, the message version, whatever you want to call it. I'm not saying that there are not places in there that maybe he captures the sense of the text beautifully or powerfully. But in general, I regard it more as a commentary or an interpretation of the text than I do more of a straight translation. And if a person will read it with that in mind, I don't see a big problem with it. Just don't regard it as being a necessarily accurate translation, more an interpretation or commentary of a man on the biblical text. You know, I read all kinds of commentaries. Some of them I mostly agree with, some of them I mostly disagree with, but I want to get different perspectives on the text, and the message may give that to you. Again, I would just caution you, um, I would not regard it as being a good or great Bible translation, more a commentary or interpretation. The Passion Translation, I have to say, I haven't read any of it, but I do recommend the work of a man named Mike Winger. You can look him up on your YouTube channel. Mike Winger has done a series of videos on the Passion Translation. And I have uh, listened to his content on those uh, translations. And I would agree with him, at least from his analysis, the Passion Translation is not a good Bible translation. Again, it is highly interpretive and interpretive in ways that actually distort the text of the scripture. Hey, we need to be people of the Word of God. And what I simply mean by that is people who are committed to the scriptures and an accurate rendering of the scriptures. We want the scriptures to speak for themselves and powerfully. And so to rely on Bible translations that do a poor job of translation and really translate from a place of bias or agenda, not good. So, um, without having personally studied the Passion Translation, I would recommend to you the videos by Mike Winger upon that particular. So, I hope that helps you. Okay, next question from Caroline. She says, Dear Pastor David, my question is about Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. How can resurrection, resurrected and raptured saints that have glorified bodies still be subject to the deceptions of Satan? All right, let me read that for everybody. Revelation chapter 20, here at verse 7, where it says, Now, when the thousand years were expired, uh, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And then the next verse describes the end of that battle. God just answers with fire from heaven and destroys this last satanic resistance upon earth. Okay, so uh, Caroline's question is, how could it be that believers with resurrected and glorified bodies could be prone to the kind of deception that is described there in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. And Carolina, I'll say this. And again, whenever we're talking about end times events and things to come in the future, there are a variety of opinions about these things in the Christian world. But you ask me, so I'm going to give you my opinion. I do not believe that the people described in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 and 8, the people dwelling on the earth, I do not believe that those are resurrected, glorified believers. I believe that those are uh, uh, citizens of the planet earth, earth dwellers, people who have survived Armageddon and the Great Tribulation, who have been allowed into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, and 
they have lived, now these would be technically a thousand years later, so no doubt the descendants of those but these are people who are not yet uh, dead, so to speak. They still live earthly lives. And it's among those people that Satan will be able to stir up a final rebellion, as it's described there in verses 7 and 8 of Revelation chapter 20. So, again, I believe that believers, resurrected, glorified, will be part of the millennial earth, but not as the inhabitants of earth on the millennium, but rather those who rule and reign with Jesus Christ through the millennium. Uh, if you've got more questions on that, you can go to the video on my YouTube channel. It's in my God's Plan of the Ages series, where I specifically deal with the millennium. Uh, so that's simply the question that I, I think you are assuming that the people described in verses 7 and 8 are resurrected, glorified believers, when I would say they are not. They are inhabitants of planet Earth who have not yet died, who have not yet passed on to. So let me go on here to the next question uh, by Jesse. Whoops. Okay. Jesse says, hey, pastor, are there any books you recommend on church history? Very interested in the Puritans and about the Crusades. I want to thank you for your commentary on Blue Letter Bible. Very helpful. Well, first of all, let me just say thank you for your kind words. And I, I never tire of recommending to people the Blue Letter Bible. The Blue Letter Bible is an amazing Bible resource that not only has my Bible commentary and the commentary of many other people on it, but has amazing Greek and Hebrew original language tools for your Bible study and a multitude of Bible translations and other resources. Blue Letter Bible, just search for it. You'll find it. It's a tremendous ministry. Now, Jesse asks about books for church history. So let me, uh, well, I'm looking back on my bookcase. I think I've taken away some of my books on church history. Uh, some of the books I would recommend on church history are, again, I'm scanning shelves and not seeing them immediately. Well, Here being a history of Christianity by Kenneth Scott Latourette. Now, this is a big volume. These are two volumes together. But I got to say, Jesse, this is the best church history that I've ever read. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a lot to read, but man, Kenneth Scott Latourette is an excellent scholar of church history and of history in general but also a godly man who I think understood many of the great themes throughout church history and dealt with them fairly. So th this is a tremendous resource I would recommend to you. But then if you want a shorter work, I would recommend um, a book by a man named Bruce Shelley, Church History in Plain Language. Again, I don't have that on the shelf behind me, but that's another great book. Church History in Plain Language. That's a one-volume work, maybe about this thick, and that's a shorter treatment. One other resource I'll recommend to you and to anybody else, my good friend, Pastor Lance Ralston. He's the pastor of Calvary Chapel Oxnard, which is a church I would highly recommend to anybody who lives in that area of Ventura County uh, in California. My friend Lance Ralston has an outstanding podcast series. Actually, he has a few different series. Just search wherever you look for podcasts, look for Lance Ralston. His podcast title is Communo Sanctorum, and he deals with church history in a marvelous podcast series that has a lot of different aspects in it. If you're looking for something to listen to that would give you a great survey of church history, I highly recommend Lance Ralston's Communo Sanctorum uh, podcast. All right, let me continue on here. Uh, Jane asks, David, my Bible study got stuck on a psalm passage yesterday. David says, I hate my enemies, but we're supposed to love our enemies. Can't remember the exact passage, but the leader said that it was okay, the concept I was talking about. 
Um, okay, Jane, let me just say that in the Psalms, where we see David or others expressing hatred against enemies, part of it we understand in terms of David being the leader of a unique nation, the nation of Israel, called to a unique purpose in God's plan. Therefore, he could hate those who were enemies of God's work in and through Israel. He could hate them because they were opposing God's work. Anybody who wanted to destroy ancient Israel was not only a sinner for their desire to destroy it, but they were setting themselves against God's plan in a way that would be different than opposing any other nation, which could also be sin, but this was an even greater sin. So in that sense, sometimes commentators like to make the idea that David and others in the Old Testament that speak in that way, they're speaking in a representative sense, representing God's people and God's work as a whole in and through Israel. And I think there's something to that. But I think there's also something for us to say, just simply, that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, not that there was no grace and truth revealed in the Old Testament. Of course there was. But we have to admit, the fullness of God's revelation of grace and truth is revealed in the New Testament. Again, I, I really want to emphasize this point. I'm not saying that the God of the Old Testament is not a God of grace and truth. He is. And God's people in the Old Testament were commanded to live in a way that demonstrated God's love and grace to humans. However, we must admit that there is a greater revelation of the love and grace of God in and through the person of Jesus Christ himself. So we have a greater understanding of the love and even the sacrificial love that we are to have for other people and even hating our enemies by what we see revealed by Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus and the other writers of the New Testament in the New Testament. So um, I don't have any problem arguing it on both points. Number one, the hatred they expressed is sort of a representative hatred on behalf of God and his people. And secondly, we just simply recognize that there is a greater revelation of the love and grace of God and that that we're to show to others. Okay, hope that helps you. Um, Levy asks the question, how do you seek the Lord with all your heart? Levy. I know that sometimes this concept of seeking God with all your heart, or what some people call full surrender. By the way, that's the title of a book that I really love and appreciate. Uh, that simple title of a book by the late Dr. J. Edwin Orr. Forgive me as I look up here and can't immediately find one again. Uh, that simple title of or the concept of a full surrender. That troubled some people. Because they say, how can I seek God with all my heart? I, I will fail in some respect. How can I make an absolutely full surrender to God? That would imply a perfect surrender. I can't do that. I think that that misunderstands what it means to seek the Lord with all your heart or to make a full surrender. I would not understand it in those ways. I would understand this. When I make a full surrender to God, I am surrendering to him everything that I am conscious of. When I give Jesus all my heart, I'm giving to him everything that I am conscious of. I understand that we will never give ourselves to God perfectly on this side of eternity. We are imperfect human beings. However, the idea of all your heart is just simply to say, is there anything that I am consciously withholding in my life from the Lordship of Jesus Christ, from obedience to Him? 
And if there's anything that I can conceive of that I'm consciously withholding from Jesus, well, that especially is what I want to surrender down before him in the name of Jesus. So again, I hope that helps you there. Let me continue on here to Luciana. By the way, I have to say, I'm delighted to see so many familiar names here in the side chat. Uh, being gone a couple weeks, you kind of wonder when I come back, is anybody going to show up? But it's great to have this time that I can spend with you and uh, many of our regulars who come in on the YouTube Live question and answer time here on a Thursday. Okay, in any regard, Luciana's question is this. Why is it harder to evangelize someone in our own family? What do you think we should do besides pray for their salvation? Sometimes I catch myself thinking I won't see my brother in heaven someday. Well, Luciana, God bless you, and what you say is true. For many of us, maybe even most of us, the most difficult people to evangelize are people in our own family. There is a family dynamic where they know us better and we know them better. Um, we so desperately don't want to make for a bad or an awkward relationship with people in our family. We don't want them to reject us or to reject God's message uh, because of something that we say or do. Um, and I think also there's a spiritual dynamic at work there as well. I can't give you all the reasons why it is very difficult for us to evangelize people in our own family, but I will say this. What you talk about is true, and what you say about what to do beyond praying, that's a good thing to think about, but I want you to know, Luciana, that praying is the most effective thing we can do. If you ever had to choose between speaking to God about lost people in prayer, or speaking to lost people about God people in giving them the gospel. I would say if you ever had to choose between the two, pick praying for them. Now, believe me, thank the Lord we don't have to choose between the two, and we should actually do both. That it's a wonderful thing to both pray for people's salvation and to speak to them the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. We can do both, but it is very important, perhaps even more important for us to pray to God for the salvation of those who don't yet know. Now, Luciana, I would say this, pray for them and also pray for yourself that God would give you wisdom and courage to speak when there is a good opportunity to speak. I think there's something powerful and strategic about good evangelism, simply in this sense, that there are times when God gives us an open door and we want to be able to take those opportunities with everything that we have. So make that your prayer. Not only that God would remove the veil that blinds your dear family member or loved one, for example, your brother, from perceiving his need for the gospel and God's provision in the gospel but also pray that God would give you wisdom and courage to see opportunities and to speak the proper word. I hope that helps. Continue on here. Dave says, question, David, what are your thoughts on the idea of a jealous God as in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, you shall not bow down yourself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Um, Dave, thank you for this. Uh, I just simply want to say that the idea of God being a jealous God, when we use the word and the idea of jealousy in English, we think of it as only being a negative thing. You really wouldn't, in the English language, use the word or the idea of jealousy in a positive sense. But in the biblical languages, the idea of jealousy also includes being properly zealous for the faithfulness of something that you're faithful to. 
a spouse, for example, a wife, has a proper expectation for the faithfulness of her husband, and vice versa. It's not inappropriate. And God has a proper jealousy, not a sinful one, not a weird one, not a strange one, but a proper jealousy for the love and the commitment of his And so I would just say that even though in the English we regard jealousy as being something that's pretty much only negative, that's not the concept in the biblical languages. And we just simply can understand that there is a legitimate expectation of faithfulness in particular relationships. And in the relationship that God has with us, he has a rightful expectation of us being faithful. And uh, that's not sinful on his part. Again, I, I hope that helps you there, Dave. And I'm happy to hear that the audio from this week sounds much better. Uh, the last time we did our question and answer video a few weeks ago, we tried this new camera and broadcasting setup, and uh, it didn't work as well as this one is working today. And we hope to continue to improve things. Uh, Knack says, the school my kids attended celebrated Reformation Day instead of Halloween. They dressed up as their favorite person of faith since past, and we give a short presentation on the person. Well, Nack, I think that's a great idea for people to do regarding uh, something for an alternative having to do with um, uh, Halloween or something like that. Um, Yes, just scanning through some of the questions here. Wes asks, have you watched the series The Chosen? If you have watched it, did you enjoy it? Okay, Wes, I have not. It's come highly recommended. Matter of fact, I've had people just sort of grab my arm and say, you have to watch this. It's really good. But I have not yet seen it. I intend to. Uh, I just need to get busy with that and see it. And then I could give you a better evaluation. I've heard very good things about this video depiction of the life of Jesus. And I suppose later on, they intend to do the early church called The Chosen. Um, Lupe, yes, and then I'm going to end with this on um, Jane saying, another TV documentary about Noah and the days, the producer says we're on the wrong day for the Sabbath, um, or excuse me, for Sabbath, and we must correct or die in sin. They also say the third angel has been circling since uh, Earth since 1840. Well, Jane... Uh, I don't exactly know about that TV documentary, but I will say that the association for having the wrong day for the Sabbath and the year 1840 leads me to believe that this is something maybe having to do with some aspect of Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, Maybe the main group, maybe a fringe group of Seventh-day Adventists, but uh, they believe that Jesus came back or actually had a distinct different aspect in his work in the year 1840. And uh, that things have been different ever since. I, I would just disagree with that. Listen, Jane, um, you, you can feel free to disregard that. Really, just, I, I, I wouldn't give any regard to it. It, it. It's just some wrong ideas about biblical interpretation regarding the Sabbath and regarding the year 1840 and eschatology that I just think you really don't have to give much. And then for the last question that I'll take for today, Kenzie asks, My friend, who is not a believer, pulled me aside the other day and said, do you believe in a patriarchal God? Could you provide some points to speak to that? Kenzie, I I would go back to something that I've dealt with in some previous question and answer programs, where I deal with, does God want to be uh, depicted as a man or as a father? And I would just say, the very, very short answer to this is, We understand from the scriptures that God is not male or female. God is beyond this idea of human gender being either male or female. However, God has overwhelmingly chosen to present himself to us in the scriptures as being male, not female. There are a few places in the Bible where God is depicted in something that we might call a traditionally female attribute or aspect, but uh, 
again, overwhelmingly, God presents himself to us. It might even be a thousand to one, if you want to talk about in male uh, attributes and, and nomenclature, if you want to use that. So I, I would just simply say, God wants us to think of him as male while understanding that he is beyond male or female. He has chosen to represent himself that way. If in someone's mind, that means that Christianity is patriarchal, then so be it. Uh, all we can do is say, this is how the Bible tells us how God is, and simply go from that. God is a father. Um, there may be a few passages that speak of God in a motherly sense, but again, those are outnumbered a thousand to one or more. God mainly wants us to think about him as a father and in male terms. All the well understanding, I'll say it again, that he is actually beyond male. All right, I'm going to make that for the last question for the day. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a wonderful time. I just want to recommend to you the website, uh, EnduringWord.com. That's where you can find my commentary through the entire Bible. We're so grateful for those who pray for the work of Enduring Word, for those who support it. And God willing, and if I live, I'm going to be with you next Thursday for another edition of our live question and answer program. God bless you, and thank you for joining us. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.